You're listening to Inside North Central Massachusetts, powered by the North Central Massachusetts Chamber of Commerce. Welcome to another episode of the Inside North Central Massachusetts podcast election series. I'm your host, Travis Condon, today joined by Jeff Deal, one of the Republican candidates for governor in the September 6th primary and the November 8th general election. Deal is a longtime Whitman Mass resident where he lives with his wife and family. They're small business owners operating a performance arts studio out of the area. He spent time in various positions within the local government before running for state representative and serving eight years representing the 7th Plymouth District. During that time, he did lead a successful repeal of the Massachusetts gas tax indexing law and spent time on a number of committees, including the House Ways and Means Committee. In 2018, he mounted a campaign for Senate. Since then, he's been working in the private sector, joining TRO Auto Parts, a division of 1A Auto out in Pepperell, as the Director of Business Development. Jeff, thank you so much for being here. How are you? Great, Travis, and thanks for having me on. I really appreciate this. So, Jeff, why do you want to run for governor now? Why is this the time that you decided to run for governor? Well, you know, it's interesting. I... I wasn't uh, actually thinking about making the run for governor after 2018 when I had run for U.S. Senate because, you know, I had spent about eight years in office as a state representative. But you know what? What happened with uh, the pandemic and um, I think a lot of just things economically started to uh, get me frustrated with what was going on, not just uh, at a federal level, but also at the state level. And I think it was time for me to get back involved again. And, you know, back in 2010, I had felt the same feelings. I was uh, serving on the finance committee in the town of Whitman, where I live. Uh, My wife and I own a performing arts school, which she runs, and uh, we've had that for 20 years, and it's very successful. You know, but she was doing that, and uh, I was working for a sign company out of New Bedford. I had a lot of clients all over the New England area. So I got a chance to travel around the state, and what was happening back in 2010, it just felt like Beacon Hill was out of touch. They were raising our taxes, but we were having trouble getting you know, funding for our towns. In fact, I ended up running for state representative against uh, an incumbent who was the vice chair of education because I was the liaison to our local school board, uh, the regional school district. And I just felt that uh, I could be a better voice on Beacon Hill. So I'd never run for office before. I was 40 years old. Mm-hmm. I had a daughter, uh, two daughters, one who was six and one who was two at the time. Uh, but I just uh, read two books on how to run for office, and I ended up winning a long shot race and getting up to Beacon Hill. And, you know, I served on the Ways and Means Committee. I had a chance to learn a lot about how our state spends its money, a lot about, you know, where we do a great job and where we can make some improvements. So, you know, while my, I served up on Beacon Hill, you know, I wasn't afraid to stand up when I felt that there was things that were, you know, questionable. Uh, in 2014, I led the repeal of our indexing, uh, the state had indexed our gas tax to go up automatically with inflation. I thought that formula was a mistake and that we actually had transportation revenue adequate to, to handle what we needed for the state. Uh, I ended up leading that ballot question in 2014, and we won mm-hmm. uh, and overturned that indexing of the uh, gas tax, which, by the way, in, in if it was still tied to inflation right now, we'd be in real big trouble because we're obviously uh, dealing with major inflationary pressure, and um, you know, it looks like we're at the edge of a, of a recession here. But anyway... Uh, all of that uh, time up on Beacon Hill, my experience there really lent um, me the uh, the knowledge to to make the run for U.S. Senate. I was hoping that as U.S. Senator in 2018, when I, I, I ran for that office, I would be able to focus more on Massachusetts and less on a divisive rhetoric down in Washington. Uh, I wasn't successful, but I did get a chance to travel around the entire state, and I really got a chance to know a lot of the facets of each each region, mm-hmm. what uh, what they do well, and where we can find room for improvement there. So, you know, uh, that is 
a lot of what went into the decision, the decision to run for um, for governor this time. When you look at your background as a small business owner, as, as a former legislator, as a candidate, uh, past and present, what really sets you apart from the other choices that folks are going to have on September 6th during the primary and then again on November 8th during the general election? What's one aspect of your background that if you had to highlight, you would choose? Well, again, you know, and uh, <laughs> this is... Uh, it just kind of a unique thing. I mean, I'm an Eagle Scout, right? And uh, what we learn when we're scouting uh, in, is that uh, you want to leave the campground better than you found it, right? Do a good turn daily. And so for me, I've always tried to find a you know a, a solution to problems that we have. And uh, you know, being a problem solver is a lifetime thing. It's not just um, when you're in office. It's it's what you do in the private sector. It's what you do, um, you know, wherever you go in your personal life. So for me, I've always tried to find ways to do things better. I think what we need right now is someone with that private sector experience mm-hmm. that uh, understands when you uh, invest your life savings in a business, you have to make it work. You have to be responsive to the customers. You have to make sure your product or your service is top-notch and that the pricing is right. And government, that's not necessarily how things operate. They uh, they operate on more of a traditional, this is the way things have always have been done kind of mentality. And as we can see with the MBTA over in Boston, that deferred uh, type of uh, maintenance and, and just doing things the way they always did it has really gotten them nowhere. In fact, we now have two train lines that are closing uh, for over a month to uh, for repairs, and it's it's going to cripple the system right now. So th- that's just a small example of where I think you have to bring that private sector into the public sector way of thinking. But, uh, you know, as well in the public sector, uh, when you're working in government, there are a lot of state agencies that do a great job uh, unfortunately, sometimes they're just the workforce there is not listened to. Um, you've got people that work for Department of Children and Families who, you know, for a long time talked about needing new technology upgrades to be able to uh, do a better job when they did uh, at-home consultations or, or inspections when they were uh, out there trying to protect children and and do their work. And and they they asked for upgrades and it took a long time. They finally got uh, mobile devices to allow them to do real-time reporting. Mm-hmm. So again, another small example, but uh, something where the the, the workers in the field needed better, um, you know, better tools, and it took a while for them to get that. The, the other thing, too, if you want to talk about law enforcement right now, there's this, you know, constant feeling of, you know, the law enforcement is at fault for things that you want to defund the police or get rid of qualified immunity. That's really caused a big problem overall with uh, morale within the police department. They're having a very difficult time recruiting. Mm-hmm. And then I guess the the pandemic itself. Uh, you know, lent itself to a, a, a big problem. Governor Baker had required a vaccine mandate for all state workers. Yep. A lot of people left the state workforce um, because of that, and um, they were either fired or they, they took a retirement. So right now, state government is, uh, I think, we've got a lot of vacancies, and that's why you've got a lot of services having problems. So for me, the merging of private sector and public sector knowledge about how things have to run for the state is Probably the biggest asset I have. And Jeff, let's keep your small business owner hat on for a second. When you look at how the state handled the pandemic and handled the shutdowns of businesses. I know you mentioned a performing arts studio, so I'm sure that had all kinds of restrictions uh, with distancing and things like that. How well do you think the state handled the pandemic and how well do you think that they're handling recovery as businesses come out on the other side? Yeah, well, you know, that's the trick, Travis. I mean, at the first, when uh, the, the lockdowns happened, I think everybody tried to do their part to stop the spread and and all that. But as we started to realize, you know, some of the data that was out there was sort of affecting children in the schools, for example. Kids were kept in masks late into last year, even when we knew that they were the least vulnerable population and that masks really weren't very effective for stopping the spread. We're now finding out that the distancing uh, may have not really been effective at all. And we certainly know now that the um, the vaccines, uh, you know, whether you're boosted or not, 
uh, have been causing breakthroughs. And so, you know, uh, people are still getting COVID, even though they were promised that the vaccines wouldn't uh, would prevent that from happening. So one of the things I want to do is restore anybody who lost their job uh, statewide um, from uh, for, because of the mandates. I want to give them their job back on day one. On day two, I'm going to you know ask anybody who thought that was good policy to no longer be in the administration. But, you know, I, I, my wife and I, we took a personal interest in trying to help during the pandemic as well. The performing arts school, as you mentioned, uh, that we own was uh, closed down. We had to wait for an arbitrary schedule to reopen. Uh, you know, restaurants were closed and only 40 percent of the, or, no, I'm sorry, 40 percent uh, didn't make it through the pandemic. Um, a lot of them, if you were a bar and you served food, you were closed for good. And if you were a restaurant that served alcohol, you could stay open. So there was sort of arbitrary rules there. If you were standing, you know, with a mask, you know, that's okay. But if you were sitting without a mask, that's okay. So it was it was interesting times, and I think we're going to learn a lot from it. Mm-hmm. But what ended up happening was a lot of businesses had a tough time recovering. Um, and I just mentioned my uh, wife's studio. What we did was we opened a learning pod in the, the dance rooms for, during the day when, when people were finally able to go back to work. Um, a lot of parents couldn't be there when their kids were working remotely uh, being educated from home, you know, three days a week at home, two days at school. So for the kids that were home for three days, you know, we opened our schools, uh, our performing arts school up for them as learning pods, and kids came in with their laptops, and we helped them get connected and, and go online. What we saw was that the public school system didn't necessarily have the, you know, best uh, platform to get kids the uh, the programs and the education they needed. Uh, we we also saw that private schools actually jumped right on board with Zoom um, in the 2020 year and were able to finish the year, whereas in 2020, the public schools didn't necessarily do so well. So I, I think there's always a lot of room for improvement everywhere, you know, in education, but also making sure that businesses, uh, as they're coming out of the pandemic, uh, get a shot to come back. And I guess one of the biggest disappointments I've seen is that when we got $5 billion in federal reimbursement for uh, the pandemic, the uh, the relief from the pandemic, mm-hmm. they ended up spending, a, Beacon Hills did a $4 billion sort of uh, spending bill that was a lot of pet projects. You know, for example, Beverly got, uh, in, in the city of Beverly, they got pickleball courts. You know, instead of putting all that money, the bulk of it, into the unemployment trust fund, which was depleted to the tune of about $7 billion, they only put about a half a billion dollars in there, and they bonded the rest as debt to put back on top of businesses who had been shut down, who, who's had employees... Uh, who were incentivized not to come back to work for quite a period of time. So if you survive that as a business, you know, the new thing now is you're going to be taxed additionally or or given a new fee to pay back the unemployment that that, uh, kept you, uh, your business from being able to operate in the first place. So it's a slap in the face. I think we need to do better for businesses. Now, Jeff, you mentioned the unemployment insurance trust fund, and that's something that had been dealing with issues for a while. And it, it was the pandemic was almost kind of the, the the straw that broke the camel's back, if you will. What would you propose as the long term solution to fix the unemployment insurance trust fund? You mentioned that it kind of kicks the can down the road with what they did do, but what can we do as a permanent solution to rectify that if you're elected? Yeah. So what's happening uh, right now, if people aren't aware, is that our state has actually collected o- over five billion dollars in unanticipated tax revenue this year. The federal government has actually had record tax collections as well. And what I, I recommend is that um, a certain portion of any excess tax revenue get put into the unemployment uh, unemployment uh, uh, fund, trust fund, because again, businesses are what grow the jobs in our state. It's the innovation and the employment that businesses provide that continue to you know give people the opportunity to own homes, to uh, send their kids to schools, to retire at some point, but also to pay uh, for the services and goods that, that get taxed, and then that provides our state our revenue. So in my opinion, 
giving small businesses an extra sort of insurance of their own that any excess tax revenue would go towards helping them with unemployment would be great. And, um, you know, that's the, um, that's the other thing is that uh, our state has, um, is going to try to be putting a, well, the ballot question uh, in November to try to add an additional 4% uh, tax to uh, anybody who makes over a million dollars. A lot of small business owners, like my wife and I, have a, an LLC, or some businesses are, um, are S-Corps. And uh, what ends up happening is the income that comes in from your business gets merged with your personal income. So if your business is bringing in, let's say, a half a million dollars or, or 750000 but you've got expenses, you know, maybe five or six hundred thousand dollars in expenses, your, your money out is, is, is pretty significant as well, but it's all being counted as part of your million dollar income. So what's going to happen is you're going to drive capital investment out of our state. You're going to take people who uh, have high wealth and usually reinvest it into state businesses and jobs. You're going to either make them leave physically or else they're going to offshore their money somewhere. So I think this, uh, this millionaire's tax uh, is what they're calling it on Beacon Hill. It really is more of a graduated income tax. It allows our state to now uh, charge beyond a 5% income tax. And once Beacon Hill has the opportunity to do that, I think they're going to start doing what California and New York State did, which is to create graduated levels at which uh, different uh, income levels will be taxed. And unfortunately, when the tax revenue doesn't come in like they expect, we're probably going to see uh, people at even lower income levels being taxed at a higher rate than they currently are, because that's the model and that's what's happened in those other states that's tried this. I think uh, we've got to be aware on Beacon Hill of all the different ways that um, businesses can be affected, whether it's the unemployment insurance tax uh, fund or mm -hmm. whether it's this new tax uh, that they're trying to implement on high earners. That, And again, a million dollars nowadays isn't even what it used to be. Um, if you uh, if you live in Southie uh, in Boston, those triple-deckers, uh, one floor of a triple-decker in Southie is about a million dollars. I was out in, um, uh, I think it was Lee, in... Um, uh, in Western Massachusetts, and there's an old mill that's being restored right now, and uh, the condos uh, being built in that mill are $800,000 each. So across the state, no matter where you are, um, the cost of living is so much higher because of um, you know the, just the, the, the high cost of uh, housing in our state. So we've got to make sure that housing is something else that we, we uh, can unlock uh, for the future to make sure that people can stay in the state and afford to live here. And I do want to stick with the tax issue for a minute because not only is the millionaire's tax being discussed, but also the possibility of tax cuts. We did see formal sessions end on Beacon Hill, but there's still talk of a possible tax cut. I know the governor, uh, the House and Senate presidents both talking about this. Do we need these extra tax cuts? Well, I think what they're trying to do is a relief package because, again, because of the high inflation, the um, high cost of, uh, for example, food right now has gone through the roof. I mean, restaurants right now. Uh, I, I talked to somebody who uh, I was in, Springfield yesterday at uh, City Jake's restaurant, the cost of eggs has tripled for them, but they can't necessarily cost, pass that cost on to the customer because, you know, people at some point just are going to go somewhere else for a restaurant. So um, what we've got to do is try to find ways to, uh, again, it's not just cutting taxes, but return, you know, money that's been uh, overtaxed. And so I think what the governor and the legislature were trying to do before the end of session was get some sort of relief package put together. Unfortunately, um, the legislature uh, decided not to act, and the uh, session ended about two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. So what I need to do for the future is, again, make sure that we are not overtaxing people. I'd like to see a cut to uh, uh, our our uh, sales tax. I mean, it went in 2009 from 5% to 6 and a quarter. I think we make ourselves more competitive with neighboring states and the region if we get our uh, our sales tax down to 5% again. And again, we don't 
seem to need all the excess tax because we're getting in uh, annually a, a lot more in revenue than we anticipate. And um, the um, the other thing too is you know when you've got to be competitive, like I said, with like New Hampshire, which has you know no tax, no sales tax, and so that's going to help uh, certain cities and towns you know in your region. Um, you know, I just think that uh, Beacon Hill doesn't necessarily think about the impact of on families when they're they're uh, you know continually trying to raise the taxes um, across the board, whether it's corporate tax, whether it's sales tax, or new new fees that are being tacked on with energy costs. I mean, with the whole uh, goal of trying to get to full renewable energy, which, uh, as a side note, I think is not going to be uh, possible. I mean, you just cannot, cannot put enough wind and solar panels up to uh, to create that renewable energy to, to offset what we've lost with uh, nuclear power, for example, Pilgrim Nuclear Power Plant. So energy costs are going to be passed on to the consumer. That's just another way that we're sort of taxed indirectly through our utilities. And when you talk about energy costs, I know a new climate change legislation bill was recently just signed. Coupling that with those 2050 goals of net zero carbon emissions, how would your energy policy differ if you're elected this November? And what do you think the state needs to do differently to battle climate change, but also make it so businesses can still afford to do business here in North Central Massachusetts? Right, right. I mean, you know, nobody, I don't think anybody argues that we don't want to reduce our, our impact on the environment. Uh, that's been something everybody agrees on. It's just how quickly can we do it and in, in what's the most reasonable way to do it. So the um, the goal of trying to be completely uh, fossil fuel free by 2030, I think, is a very unrealistic goal. Um, you know, you're talking about having, you know, trucks, of uh, you know, including trains, everything basically not being able to operate with fossil fuel. And, uh, and, and by the way, how do you enforce that with vehicles coming in from out of state? You know, so it's it's just our own vehicles would have to be uh, in Massachusetts would have to be fossil fuel free. But um, more Healy, the uh, attorney general currently and who's the the Democratic uh, looks like presumptive nominee for governor, has uh, very proudly proclaimed that she was able to block two liquid natural gas pipelines into Massachusetts. You know, we need all energy options on the table because again wind and solar cannot produce enough energy to cover what was lost with the 19% uh, energy loss from Pilgrim Nuclear Power Plant. And on top of that, we've been shutting down two coal-fired plants uh, over the last 10 years. So we are down to, um, you know, basically trying to rely very quickly on electricity as our main energy source. And right now, the grid doesn't necessarily have the capability to handle it. We don't have enough electric vehicles to be able to handle it. So what I actually would like to do is um, also get rid of the excise tax for Massachusetts. It's a Korean War era tax that uh, really never went away. And, you know, if anybody buys a car, they already pay a sales tax on the car. Every year they have to register the car, get its emissions tested, okay, which is additional fees to the state. But what, what also happens is every year they get a bill from the state for an excise tax. And if you have a new car, it can be six, seven, eight hundred $800, depending on the, the type of vehicle you bought. So I think one way to get people into more efficient vehicles right now is to cut the excise tax. And again, the state has enough revenue right now to be able to uh, backfill the lost uh, tax revenue to the towns because towns and cities actually collect that excise tax and get to keep it. But the state can make up for that. And um, by getting rid of the excise tax, we can make ourselves more fuel efficient down the road by getting people into those cars. But um, again, I also see what's really exciting is coming down the pike uh, nuclear fusion uh, technology, and, and in Massachusetts, we actually have uh, one of the leading top, I'd say top six companies in the world that are working on nuclear fusion. And the reason I'm so excited about it is because uh, nuclear fusion is different than nuclear fission. 
everybody thinks of Three Mile Island or, or Fukushima or all these dangerous nuclear power plants from the 70s and 80s. This is different. Instead of splitting the atom, this actually bounces the atom together. And uh, it, it's a new technology that's being worked on and invested in billions of dollars going into it right now. Um, there's a, a company called Commonwealth Nuclear, uh, it, and it's actually, they've got a campus being built in Devon's right now here in Massachusetts. It's got the potential to provide um, the, enough electrical energy to give us you know, unlimited power for the long haul. What it does is it creates almost like a, a mini sun you know, through their uh, reactor process. Um, you can actually generate 11 times the amount of power needed uh, to power the thing. You, you'll generate 11 times the power out. So it's, I hate to say, it, I almost call it like an everlasting gobstopper of, uh, of energy. But once we can have electric energy at a more abundant resource, like uh, through nuclear, I think we will have the ability to um, do a lot more. We can actually create um, hydrogen fuel cells from using that electricity, lower cost electricity. Hydrogen can be used for powering trucks, uh, boats. Uh, cars, things like that. So I think we're going to see new energy uh, ways to power ourselves in the next 10 to 20 years, but we just can't give up fossil fuels overnight. We have to make sure that we transition uh, correctly. And we, you know, people are, are going to have a major uh, wake-up call just this fall with home heating oil costs because we don't have enough natural gas coming into the state for some of these cities and towns to power, um, you know, to, to give power to the homes to heat themselves. So it, it, I think in the spring before summer came, we were already seeing skyrocketing um, you know, home heating oil costs. We're about to see even more. And again, this this philosophy of going completely cold turkey on fossil fuels, you've got to find a gradual balance out of it. So I think that's the smart solution for the long haul. And when you mentioned your previous run for office, driving around the state in this current run, uh, learning about the different facets of Massachusetts, whether it's Western Mass, Central Mass, Boston, North of Boston, South Shore, South Coast. When you look at North Central Massachusetts, we have not yet achieved our economic development potential. There's a lot of folks out here who have the sentiment that it feels like a lot of times anything kind of beyond the 128 belt is forgotten about by Beacon Hill. If you're elected in November, what will you do to ensure that North Central Massachusetts reaches its full economic development potential for those mom and pop shops and for the businesses and the residents here in the area? (laughs) Well, Travis, first of all, I think you need a mom-and-pop shop-type owner to actually be the, the person in uh, the corner office there to have that philosophy. I also don't live in Boston. I'm a suburban or, or country mouse kind of guy that's trying to get the city mouse uh, you know, politicians to take a focus beyond 495. So I, I agree with you. I think one of the good signs is that most people seem to be uh, agreed upon that east-west rail is something that we should be uh, pushing towards. I think what we can do is unlock certain parts of our state where we, we can move uh, people out of the high-cost Boston market uh, for housing and, and even companies and, and get them into central and, and western Massachusetts. Um, you know, the uh, I actually work for 1A Auto, which is a Pepperell-based, um, you know, company that, that started about 20, now 21 years ago, and they grew, um, you know, very quickly and have become a very prominent player in on the auto parts industry. They're based in Massachusetts, and uh, you know, they certainly want to grow in Massachusetts. The plan now is to build new headquarters. We've, we've got a fulfillment center here, a big warehouse. So I think, um, you know, I, I work for a company that is, uh, it believes in Massachusetts. And so, again, serving in the corner office, I absolutely think that, uh, you know, my goal is to, to get that business perspective um, enhanced. So, you know, I, I'm looking at um, some of the towns, obviously, in north central Massachusetts. You've got, um, you know, you've got, you're doing actually pretty well overall with, uh, you know, for example, vacancies compared to the overall state. 
think you're at uh, like four and a half percent vacancy rate in um, in corporate space versus 5.3 for for Massachusetts as a whole. But and you've got some cities that are are doing well. Um, our towns and cities, uh, air is doing well. But you've got ones that where we need to focus more, like Clinton or uh, Gardner or uh, you know, like Groton, for example. You know, those are areas where we can make some improvements. So I want to try to push and, and incentivize businesses to move out into parts of our state that have that infrastructure in place. Uh, maybe there's been sort of a, a decline in businesses leaving. Seen Smith and Wesson is leaving um, Springfield, for example, partly based on politics because uh, our Attorney General Maura Healy um, thinks that uh, the AR-15 is uh, an assault rifle. It's actually not an assault rifle. Uh, but she said it looks like a, a, a military-style weapon, so she's she's got a, a guidance against that. And so they're basically going to take. Uh, they're, they've already decided and are starting to move their headquarters down to Tennessee because. They can't stay in Massachusetts when 61% of their revenue uh, comes from a certain type of gun manufacturing that, that she won't make legal. So, uh, you know, again, better business-friendly decisions. Raytheon uh, is getting ready to uh, move its headquarters down to Virginia. You know, we've got to get um, our businesses to feel like Massachusetts is a place where the employees that they bring here can afford to live here. We actually lost 50,000 people in Massachusetts last year. They, they left our state. We are one of the higher exodus states of people leaving, and I think some of it has to do with high cost of housing. Some of it, I think, just generally, you know, freedom issues. Like, again, the vaccine mandate, I think, angered a lot of people. I think uh, parents with kids in schools were upset about the masks and potential vaccine requirements for kids. We've seen kids starting to move into homeschooling. Uh, homeschooling has doubled in the last two years uh, here in our state. Um, private schools have uh, double-digit increases as well. So public schools, you know... Uh, They've got to get with the program and, and start mm -hmm. listening to parents as well at school board meetings. So I'll, a lot of these little things kind of play into why people are satisfied and being part of our state. And, um, of course, making sure that uh, we don't lose any more businesses. And in fact, we recruit them back. I mean, I don't know if people are aware of this, but Facebook actually started in Massachusetts and it ended up going to the West Coast. You know, thankfully, we have the life science industries that are big in uh, in our state and they they tend to be around boston area right now but i think we can start to get them to move uh into different parts of our state as long as we make sure that infrastructure and, uh, and by the way when i say infrastructure i also mean wireless and um and internet infrastructure we've got to make sure that you know if you're driving around you know uh let's say uh in you know lunenburg or something like that make sure you don't lose connectivity with your your cell phones businesses want to make sure their employees are able to get wireless and uh, you know, and cell phone you know connections with no problems because that's that's important to make sure that uh, they don't lose business at all. So I think we've got to start looking you know central and western Massachusetts more investments in getting broadband and um, and internet and cell cellular uh, redundancy so that. Uh, we, we can make it even more business friendly. Now, Jeff, you mentioned the east-west rail and getting folks to come out to north central Massachusetts and other areas. And I think some folks look at the congestion we have on Route 2 and then they see the news about the shutdowns with the Orange Line and they say, do we have the infrastructure that can support uh, more migration out this way and, and getting more folks out this way? And if you were to be elected, how would you work on transportation infrastructure and solving these existing crises we have while also supporting more of that east-west uh, commerce? Yeah, I mean, look, I think that there's talk about not just east-west rail, but south coast rail, which would go down into the maybe even Fall River area. Um, so those those sort of help alleviate situations along the east coast. But you're right, Route 2 can get very congested in certain parts of uh, certain times of the day. Um, I think what has to happen is we have to have a discussion with mayors and, and stakeholders across the state and, and 
chambers. I mean, honestly, with chambers of commerce to say, what are the infrastructure problems that we have currently? You know, I, I live in the South Shore area. There's a, a, a brain tree split coming out of Boston uh, down in the South Shore. That is just always forever a congested problem. And I think what has to happen is a master plan has to come out to say, here's what we're going to do. Instead of piecemeal bridge replacements or instead of piecemeal uh, projects that, uh, like, for example, um, down in the Cape, they're finally going to replace the two bridges, uh, the Sagamore and Bourne Bridge uh, going in, and they're going to get help from the uh, the federal government and um, the uh, our Army Corps of Engineers are going to be involved in that as well. You know, that's great uh, when you can take on, you know, big projects like that every once in a while, the big dig, obviously, in Boston. But ha when have we done really a big dig for anything outside the 495 Beltway? It feels like we never give any serious thought to um, to, to equity when it comes to those kind of large-scale projects that would actually alleviate the traffic and create those more enterprise zones, again, across the state where we have the uh, infrastructure. I mean, certainly, um, you know, towns like Orange, you know, sort of post-industrial have plenty of buildings that I think could be, be uh, you know, reworked into uh, new, new either residence or office buildings or, or manufacturing centers. So let's get the roadways and, and the better, uh, you know, decongest the area so that, that people are feeling better about working in parts, other parts of the state. And by the way, beautiful parts of the state. I mean, you know, it's, it's great to live along the coastline and, and be able to, you know, I guess go off to the Cape every now and again. But there's gorgeous uh, sections of central and western Massachusetts that uh, the Connecticut River, um, I mean, you can head up into, you know, obviously New Hampshire and Vermont on day trips. Uh, so it, it's a beautiful place to live. And uh, we just have to make sure we promote that as well. And Jeff, as you mentioned, Massachusetts being a beautiful place to live and, and there being great places to check out. Uh, tourism, third largest industry in the state, one of the hardest hit by the pandemic. It's also a priority industry here in North Central Massachusetts that we're trying to grow. Despite its importance, though, Massachusetts often falling at the bottom of the pack when compared with other states in terms of investment into tourism and marketing uh, and support of the industry. How would you help the reason? The, how would you help the region and the state capitalize on tourism to better compete uh, with some of those other day trip destinations here in New England and across the country? I know it's funny. People forget that we're a state that uh, you can ski in the winter and you can go to the beach in the summer. I mean, how many other states in the union can you actually say that? I mean, maybe California, uh, but you know, it's um, it's pretty rare. So we we have you know everything there plus everything in the middle, and and in the middle you've got incredible agriculture that lends itself to great fall you know leaf peeping seasons, and obviously go into uh, farms for you know the, the all the activities that are surround. Uh, you know, the Halloween, Thanksgiving time, you know, those fun activities. But, you've, you've again, you have uh, biking and uh, zip lining and kayaking, and you've got uh, great restaurants. You've got, uh, you know, breweries that are popping up all over the state that are great to visit. And so, you know, we end up spending a lot of our tourism dollars talking about places that people already know about, you know, the Cape and Islands, certainly. We have uh, a lot of money that goes to uh, promoting the Encore Casino, uh, you know, now that we have the, you know, and then there is the casino, obviously, in Springfield as well, the MGM. But the fact of the matter is there's so many other things to highlight and promote. And I think what you know, we've got to be talking about is, is getting not only our current residents to get out and visit parts of the state they don't normally get to, but making sure that other states are aware. So we've got to spend a little bit of our money and invest that in doing that proactive advertising outside of our own borders. Uh, you know, again, New England states, I think a lot of them would come down to Massachusetts and uh, you know, get a great chance to see – the, the cities and towns that, that have uh, built up our country. And, um, you know, the other thing I, I think we've got to do is get people from further away. You know, right now we're losing a lot of people to, that are moving to or, or visiting Florida. Let's get some Floridians to come up here to Massachusetts in the nice, 
you know, in the uh, in the summer when it's so hot down there, and they can enjoy, you know, the coastline, or they can enjoy the uh, Central Mass, or they can enjoy the Western Massachusetts uh, Tanglewood. You know, there's there's so many things to promote across the state. I want to make sure that we are uh, we are a state that lets people know there's a lot going on here. What's the old saying? If a tree falls in the woods and nobody's there to hear it, did it make a sound? If if we've got great stuff going on but nobody comes to visit, did it really happen, right? But but it does happen. It's happening all the time. Let's let's get out there and uh, bang our drum about it. Now, Jeff, we do see and read and hear a lot about divisiveness, um, not just in Washington, D.C., but also uh, here in Boston on Beacon Hill. Do you see yourself as being someone who can effectively work across party lines to pass meaningful legislation if you're elected in November? Yeah, and so that's the thing. I think people want to say that, you know, there's only a handful of Republicans currently that serve in the legislature. There's um, there's 160 state reps and there's 40 senators. And of the 160 state reps, there's there's less than 30 Republicans and there's only about three or four state senators out of 40. So uh, those few Republicans that serve in office, and I was one of them, uh, you have to be able to work with the Democrats or else you don't stay up there. Uh, I was elected uh, four times, uh, so I've served eight years. I was unopposed in my last two election cycles because I think people understood, uh, Democrats and Republicans in my district, that I was actually someone trying to just work for the interests of the people. I served on uh, great committees like Ways and Means and Housing, um, and I was able to you know, certainly um, have my input on bills that were important to the state. And um, I think that's something that is, is not as well known for people. Yeah, they think about Washington and divisiveness when it comes to Republicans and Democrats. I actually think in Massachusetts, we find a, a pretty good balance uh, up on Beacon Hill. Um, you know, there are some issues that, uh, that certainly are wedge issues that divide people time and time again. Um, one of the things is immigration. You know, right now there's an effort to give driver's licenses, or not just an effort, the legislature passed a law that will give driver's licenses to people who are here illegally. There is a ballot question right now to, to repeal that that will be um, on the ballot in November. So people will have a chance to weigh in on whether or not they think people who are here illegally should get driver's licenses. I am actually against driver's licenses for those here illegally for a couple of reasons. One is it's going to be processed through the RMV, which has a history of failing to, to do their job. You know, uh, whether it comes to um, – there was 85 boxes of out-of-state violations that weren't processed by the RMV that led to the death of um, some Marines in New Hampshire killed by a Massachusetts uh, driver who, was, um, who should have had his license suspended. Okay? In Brockton, down where I live, uh, the RMV issued 2,000 driver's licenses to people who never took a test. So there's, there's been some security flaws. Giving somebody a driver's license needs to have high security because those have become IDs that are used you know, nation and worldwide. So it's important for Massachusetts to have some validity there. Um, but anyway, it, it, one of the things that people try to say is, that, oh, this is an anti-immigrant bill. No, not at all. In fact, I've filed language to try to speed up immigration for Massachusetts because it takes too long to become a citizen. I actually think when you meet the requirements, you know the language, you have a sponsor, you have a job, we should you know, allow those people to become citizens at a faster rate right now. You know, I talk to people it can take 8, 10, 15 years sometimes to become a citizen in our state. Let's, let's get people who want to come to our state uh, to become legal because I think our state certainly has the capacity to handle um, immigrants, and we certainly you know, could use them in the workforce. And I think that uh, our state is stronger by the culture that they bring to us. Uh, I was just at a, an India Day celebration. We have 80,000 people from India that have come here to the United States, and they've come to Massachusetts as, uh, as their state. And they're great contributing members of, of uh, you know, our workforce, and they bring new ideas. They're, they're doctors. They, 
They're, they're engineers. They're, they're wonderful people who are working hard to, to build our state out. And uh, so, again, I think on Beacon Hill, we don't want to fall in the trap of trying to, you know, get caught up in wedge issues. I think we just want to make sure that government delivers all the services they're supposed to in a transparent way and in a cost-effective way that's, um, you know, and delivering that service that the, the people of Massachusetts need. I'm going to put you on the clock and give you 60 seconds starting in just a minute. If you were to show up my doorstep or any of our listeners' doorsteps to tell us why we should have your vote and how you're going to deliver on those services that you mentioned, what would you say starting right now? All right. Thanks, Travis. Well, look, first of all, uh, I've had experience on Beacon Hill uh, serving in the state legislature for eight years, and I also come from the private sector. So I have that balance of knowing you know, what we need to do uh, to make sure that Massachusetts delivers the services and um, that everybody expects from them. And I know how to do it in a cost-efficient way that, that satisfies the customers, in this case, the citizens of our state. On top of that, you know, I'm a family man. I've got two daughters. I believe in the state. I want to make sure that the American dream is available to them. But I also want to make sure it's available to you, to your kids, your grandkids. I want to make sure that, you know, Massachusetts is a place that you can afford to live and not have to leave. And so I think that uh, there's a lot of work still ahead of us, again, coming out of the pandemic. But there's so many great things about Massachusetts that we can capitalize on. We have great traditional industries in agriculture, um, in fishing, and uh, tourism, as you mentioned. We've got so many things going for us that uh, I think our future is very bright. I want to be heading up that effort to make sure that the next four years is the greatest that we can have in the state of Massachusetts. So that's uh, that's the goal. And uh, hopefully, if your listeners... You're just over, but... Uh, we are going to give you we are we are going to give you a chance to say uh, where can listeners go for more information. Yes, well, that's where I was going to go. So perfect. Yeah, so people can go to my website jeffdeal.com if they want to learn more about my uh, platforms. If they want to become a volunteer, even if you want to donate, you can go to that website, which is jeffdeal.com. G e o f f d i e h l dot com. Jeff, thank you so much for your time today. We do appreciate it. Thanks, Travis. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. You've been listening to the Inside North Central Massachusetts podcast election series today, talking with Jeff Deal, a Republican candidate for governor here in the state of Massachusetts. The Republican primary is scheduled for Tuesday, September 6th, and the general election is slated for November 8th. You've been listening to Inside North Central Massachusetts. This podcast is produced by the North Central Massachusetts Chamber of Commerce. For more information on this episode, links to other episodes, or if you have any questions, please visit northcentralmass.com.